together with with Jesus' people, and uh, it's a, a lovely day, and, you know, this is just great, isn't it, to be spending time together in the presence of the Lord, worshiping Him, enjoying His presence among us, and preparing, of course, to go out from this place and, you know, into whatever today and tomorrow hold and the rest of the week. And, uh, you know, sometimes we think of the church as a picture, a bit like a, uh, a group of people all standing in a circle holding hands and Jesus is in the middle, right? And it's true. When we come together to gather in his name and worship and we can see each other's faces and we can, like with that second worship song, bless each other in the name of Jesus. Uh, but there's also a picture... Just change that picture in your head for a minute and think of the church gathered we're in a circle, Jesus in the midst, but we're facing outwards as not, not we turn away from Jesus, but as he sends us out into the world. And, uh, and so as you go out today from this place, just remember, you know, that's where the action really is. Uh, that's where you're going to uh, make a difference. Now, uh, we're going through a series on the book of First Thessalonians. If you were not here last week for the first in this series, uh, can I just encourage you to go to the website and check out the podcast or the video. And uh, I think if you missed that one, it'll help you catch up with what we've done and where we've come from. And there's some introductory things that we dealt with last week about the book of First Thessalonians. And I think it'll help you get, get on track. Uh, but uh, if you didn't, if you, you know, today it won't matter for now because uh, I'll explain as much as I can as we, as we go along. So we're always going to start off with our text, but before our text, our title. So the passage is 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 to 12. The title of this, I've given this passage or this message is the character of Christian witness, the character of Christian witness how not to waste your time in outreach. All right. How not to waste your time in outreach. Uh, you know, the church uh, engages over the years. We engaged in an awful lot of Christian activity, uh, outreach, ministry, mission, efforts, rallies, crusades. You just, you know, you can name them all. And the big question is, what was, was it all worthwhile? What are we, what's, the outcome, how do we know that we're not simply taking up space and wasting our time? And this chapter gives us the answers to that question. It gives us the answer because that was Paul's concern, uh, that he didn't, that his efforts were not in vain. And he mentions this in a few letters, but there's a key text here that we're going to look at in just a moment. So let's read it. Uh, and, and of course, as I said before, this, when, on Sunday mornings when we're looking through a passage of scripture or, or looking through the scriptures or looking through the Bible, this is the most important part. Uh, what I'm about to read is much more important than anything I'm going to say about it after we've read it. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. On the contrary, after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. 
For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, but we have proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brothers, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, that's our text. And this is the question, what makes... Christian outreach or mission or effort worthwhile. What factors mean it's not a waste of time? And uh, is it decided by the numbers that we reach, by the numbers converted, by the growth of a church? Well, you know, those things help, right? <laughs> it's not, and if you read the book of Acts, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, pays attention to the growth of the church. But it's not the final decision. Paul has some things to say about this. You know, the church is notoriously, one of the things we're notoriously bad at is evaluating what we do. Uh, and uh, we're a little bit nervous about that sometimes. And here, Paul gives us some vital criteria for evaluating our mission effort. Now, just talk about context we should never really speak about a text without looking at its context what's happening in chapter one that means that chapter two makes sense and you know in this letter Paul is encouraging these new believers in Thessalonica because he had to leave them in a hurry when the persecution arose and he had to get out of town and so he didn't spend long enough there in his own mind he didn't have long he didn't have long enough to spend there to really establish them in some things before he moved on and so he's very, very concerned about what's going on after he leaves. And so we're going to f- find out more about that next week. But he's basically writing Thessal- Thessalonians' first letter to say, hey, you did the right thing. It wasn't just a moment of enthusiasm. This was really God at work. And over three chapters in, out of five, Paul actually tells a story. The first three chapters of First Thessalonians are basically a narrative. He is retelling the story of their encounter with Jesus. First chapter is really focusing on what happened uh, when they met Jesus, when they heard the gospel, how the Spirit was powerfully moving, how it was genuine encounter with God, and that their faith is authentic. They turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The second chapter is saying to them, and not only was your encounter with God through Christ and through the gospel really authentic, guess what? Second chapter, the messengers of the gospel were authentic as well. We weren't cheating you. We weren't deceiving you. We weren't flattering you. We weren't after your money. These are the kind of things that Paul's going to go and talk about 
And then the third chapter, he sort of brings up to date the story, uh, which we will look at next week. So he's telling them, it's a book of encouragement. You did the right thing. No mistakes when you signed on to the Jesus Project. That was absolutely the right thing to do. You really met the Lord. You believed. You repented. You turned to God. You began in work, labor, and endurance, and faith, love, and hope. The Holy Spirit was working. Chapter 2, the messengers were authentic, not money-grubbing, religious hucksters, not false prophets. So let's now get right into our text. Verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is really the thesis statement for our 12 verses. Those of you who had to write a thesis or something ever or a paper, uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's the idea. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, by the way, I said this last week. Remember, over and over in 1 Thessalonians, he reminds them of things they already know. And so here we are in chapter 2, you yourselves know. So why does he need to tell them if they already know? And of course, the answer is we often need reminding of things that we kind of know and we, we do really know, but we sometimes forget. And so there's an awful lot of reminder or the rhetoric of reminder in this letter because that's how Paul is training his new converts. He's reminding them of what he's already taught them and, and goes back to it over and over again. And so what do they know? That our coming to you was not empty. It was not in vain. All right, so on what evidence can you make that claim, Paul? How do you know that your mission in Thessalonica was not an utter waste of time, especially considering that you were chased out of town by persecutors and had to flee in just a few weeks or months? We're not quite sure exactly how long he spent in Thessalonica. But think about that. What made it more than just a passing fancy, a moment of enthusiasm, a fun time you know, doing act Christian activity, and then he moves on, leaving these former pagans now following Christ to fend for themselves. What makes it more? And the, the rest of this chap- passage down through verse 12 gives us the answer. What makes it more than just a moment? What makes it worthwhile? And that's Paul's concern, as we see in verse 1. Our coming to you was not in vain. And he says there in verse 2, on the contrary... Even though we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The first thing that makes this mission worthwhile, this outreach meaningful, is this. Boldness to declare the gospel. Boldness to declare the gospel despite the circumstances. That's the first thing. Boldness to declare the gospel despite the circumstances. Or another way of characterizing that is confidence, right? Paul says, he, and he's writing, and there's a plurality of writers here. Paul is the main writer, but the other two who are included in this letter are Silas and and Timothy. And uh, so we were bold in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of a great struggle. Now, he says here he'd he'd been mistreated in Philippi. And if you went back to Acts 16, you could read the story of how Paul and his companions were preaching the gospel in the 
Macedonian city of Philippi, not that far from Thessalonica, a couple of days walk maybe, uh, two or three days walk, but uh, he was, uh, and there they were persecuted, Paul and Silas were, were arrested, they were whipped uh, you know, uh, and, and, and put in prison. And then there's a marvelous scene where as they're worshiping God at midnight, the chains fall off. The, you know, the jailer rushes in and gets converted along with his household, but they are then pushed out of town and they move on to Thessalonica. That's, you know, so wonderful things happen in Philippi, but Paul thinks about it as being insulted and shamefully treated. And not only that, persecuted, whipped, and imprisoned. I mean, it's... And, you know, if that would have been me, or, you know, perhaps if I'd been in this mission and we were whipped and put in prison, and then we were pushed out of town, I might think about changing my strategy. I might think about doing something a little less bold, a little less confrontational. Let's, let's find a more culturally sensitive way to impart the gospel. Uh, something a bit that's a little less in your face and a little more long-term, thank you very much. And I might reassess my strategy. Or in fact, I might just go off for a holiday or vacation. I need a break. I need to heal up from my wounds. I need to reconsider my strategy here. Not going well. Uh, and what's Paul say? What made it worthwhile what made it not in vain in Thessalonica that it was that they were bold in God to preach the gospel in the midst of a of a great struggle despite having already been already suffered greatly in Philippi the previous place which made it even harder you know the second battle is often the hardest one if you're facing some battle whether it's in evangelism in ministry in life in work in family and you get through a battle, a struggle, you make it through, guess what? Quite often, there's another one coming down, another train coming down the track. It's heading in your direction. And that's the one that is really the test, uh, the second time round. Uh, and this is what happens in Thessalonica, where Paul is and his companions, uh, having just been kicked out of one town and badly treated, they come to the next, and guess what? persecution starts up all over again and did they shut up no they kept boldly proclaiming the gospel of God and and what a powerful thing that was and that's what made it worthwhile boldness listen boldness or confidence to proclaim the gospel makes our witness worthwhile when we lack boldness we shrink from proclamation Listen to that. When we lack boldness, we shrink from proclamation. And we prefer just doing good works to be nice to people. Or we prefer just being friendly to people. But guess what? And, and I utterly believe in friendship evangelism. But friendship evangelism, without the evangelism, is not evangelism. All right? Friendship evangelism without the evangelism is not evangelism. And so, you know, sometimes we're, and I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody on this, you know, not as bold as I'd like to be. Sometimes it's as if we're apologizing for the gospel. You know, you wouldn't want to hear about Jesus, would you? Thought not. 
Bye. Guess what? The bold times of ministry and outreach and evangelism are usually the best times. The bold times of outreach are usually the best times when we rise over our fears. You know, when I think of the times in my own life where I've had uh, the most worthwhile times of mission, and I don't don't mean in terms of results and and headcount, I mean what made it really worthwhile, usually when it was the boldest times or some of those bold times. I remember when being in Russia uh, in the pre, uh, you know, before the wall fell and in, in, the, in the days of the communist, uh, the Soviet Union and uh, going into the Kremlin there on a t- as, t- as a tour group, Christians they're from Australia, we traveled to Russia and, uh, and uh, we went into the there's old churches in the Kremlin is the center of government in the middle of Moscow. It's an old fort with a lot of ancient buildings in it and some big old uh, Orthodox churches still there, museum pieces really with the gold onion domes and the beautiful uh, iconography on the walls. And, uh, and if you go into, we, we looked in these churches and people are coming through on tour groups through the heart of the communist empire and uh, we suddenly realized, guess what? The gospel's on the walls. It had all these Bible stories painted on the walls for centuries. And so we just decided, God gave us boldness. We said, right. Uh, as people came in and we said, we started talking to them, do you know what these paintings mean? And they said, no. And we just explained to them the gospel from the walls of inside the church in the Kremlin. Now, I have to say that I wasn't as bold as one of our team members who kept, he discovered there was some Russian, a traditional Russian greeting, particularly around Easter time, and it wasn't Easter, but he just, he didn't care. Christos vos Christ, Christ is risen, and so he kept, he went around the Kremlin, everybody he met, Christ is risen, Christos vos Christ, he was bold. Uh, it's one of the most fruitful times of ministry I've ever had was there, and because, and it was a bold time. And one of the things that God dealt with us as we went there, he was telling us, you know, those kind of authoritarian regimes, they rule by fear. That's how they rule. That's how they keep power, by keeping everybody afraid. And so if we're going to be good news to the Russians and the Ukrainians and other people we're reaching then, we had to be not, we had to ourselves not to be living under the fear that the, that the spirit of that place you know or, or that the, that the that the government of that place wanted to put on us and if you want to be good you've got to bring good news in some sense you've got to also be good news so boldness is not bluffing bravado or bombast you like that one okay boldness is not bluffing bravado or bombast boldness is not self-generated working yourself up like some athlete actor or rock musician about to form if you want you know christian boldness is not breathing getting yourself worked up singing the team song before we to, to hype ourselves up before we go and perform Look at what it says in the text. We were bold in our God. It's not from them, not from ourselves, right? It's despite our feelings. And 
despite the circumstances, or perhaps even because of the circumstances, that we need that kind of boldness. It's, Christian, it's boldness that's in God that tells people that we are authentic. This kind of boldness makes sure that the good news is shared and heard. Without, without it, all the rest of our character, no matter how godly, counts less. No matter, without boldness to proclaim, all the rest of our character, no matter how godly, counts less than it might. There was a story, true story, about a man who was... Uh, these two, two workmates, they used to work in the building industry and they built houses together, construction. And uh, anyway, one of them uh, encounters some Christians, goes to a, a church and, and, uh, and he meets Jesus. He is saved and he's converted to Christ and he's so excited. He wants to come back and tell his longtime friend and workmate, I've, I've been saved, I met Jesus, I've, I'm a Christian now. And he tells him. And his workmate says, oh, that's great news. You know, I'm also a Christian. And so the first man says, true story, first man says to him, you know, you're the reason I didn't become a Christian a whole lot earlier. He said, what do you mean? Well, I thought if someone could be so nice and so good and so full of friendship and love and not be a Christian, I don't need to be one. In other words, all his goodness and love that he showed had the opposite effect of what he was hoping it might have because he didn't connect the character to the gospel, to the message. He didn't speak up. You know, how do you get this kind of boldness, right? Uh, you know, in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John and the others are told not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they're brought before the Jewish council, and they're told basically to shut up. And uh, is also Acts chapter 5 as well, same sort of thing happens. In Acts chapter 4, 13, we read this. When they, that is the Jewish council in Jerusalem, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they're uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. Peter and John are not bold because they've got a great education. They're not bold because they're intellectuals. They're not bold because they're confident themselves. They, they're bold because they've been with Jesus and they know Jesus and he gives them boldness. And they, they are told to shut up and not speak in the name of Jesus. So they go back to the church. They start praying. And the thing that got them into trouble in Acts 4, the thing that got them into trouble was preaching the gospel and healing the sick. So again, we might, and they were told never to do this again in public in, in the name of Jesus. And so they, and it's a big issue in the, in the book of Acts, you know, the name of Jesus. And, and so, they they went back to the church and started praying. And instead of praying, Lord, give us a different strategy, one that's more sensitive, one that's more culturally aware, one that's going to reach people on a common ground, uh, they went back and prayed something like this, Lord, you heard their threats towards us. And uh, did you hear that? They said, grant us, enable your servants to speak with boldness and 
let's have some more miracles, is basically what they pray. And they pray that, and the Holy Spirit falls on the church as they pray, and the shakes the room, shakes the place where they're gathered, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued speaking the word of God with boldness, and miracles started and kept happening. They just, it, it, their prayers were answered. So, Lord, give us boldness and miracles. How did they get boldness and more miracles? Asking God for it. They prayed. And, and so that's, you know, it's not that complicated. In Ephesians and chapter 6, Paul asks for prayer. He's writing from prison. He's on trial for his life. And uh, he's saying, I want to preach the gospel here, man. Uh, you know, uh, pray for me. That boldness will be given to me because it's really important, absolutely necessary, that I speak. That I speak. And so he says in, in Ephesians six eighteen to 20, Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that add and keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and pray also for me, that utterance, language, words may be given me and open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak. So listen, if you're not, you know, if your boldness quotient is down to about two, this is something to pray for. Pray for boldness and listen, it's something, or confidence, it's something to re-examine the gospel that we proclaim. Do you really believe it? Do you really think this is absolutely good news? It is God's good news. It is the truth. And if you believe that message and you, and you're filled with the spirit, you can have power and boldness in your ministry. That's the first thing that makes mission worthwhile. Whether or not anybody ever responds, the first thing is, Boldness to proclaim, to proclaim the gospel. Confidence, if you like. The second thing is verses 3 to 6. Verses 3 to 6. And we'll call this no wrong motives. No wrong motives. Or another, if you want a one-word summary, character. So, confidence, number one. Number two, character or no wrong motives notice all the knots in this passage all the knots uh, there's actually eight of them in the in the in the greek text here for our appeal does not spring from deception nor from impurity nor from guile but just as we've been tested by god to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak not pleasing men but pleasing god who tests our hearts for we never came with words of flattery as you know nor with a pretext for greed God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, not from you, nor from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. That's the emphasis, and sometimes the English translations leave those out, some of those out, and we miss that emphasis in that. This is, so if you think about the verses 7 to 12, we're going to talk about what we should do versus what we should be in character, versus 3 to 6 talk about what we shouldn't be, Right? in their character as witnesses, as proclaimers of the gospel. And this is absolutely important. What makes our mission, our outreach worthwhile, 
worth doing, not in vain. Number one, our boldness or confidence to proclaim. Number two, our character not having wrong motives. And so he talks in verse 3 and 4 about a pure-hearted ministry. Our appeal does not spring from deception nor from impurity, nor was it made with guile, he says. There's nothing to hide. There's no covering anything up. Uh, it's not from deception. There's, by the way, this is the wonderful thing about Christianity, about the, the good news of Jesus. It's, there's nothing we have to hide. There's no secret knowledge that you only get when you're an insider, right? Excuse me. There's no secret knowledge that only the initiates can have. No special code words that you have to pay to to be given. It's all open. And unlike some of the religions of Paul's day in Thessalonica, some of these so-called mystery religions... Uh, that were in fe- coming in from Egypt into uh, the eastern Mediterranean countries, and they had these mystery rites and rituals and 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 um, insider information, and you couldn't, you weren't given that until you committed. By the way, that's the nature of occult. The word occult means hidden, or it comes from the word meaning hidden. And the whole idea of occult practice is this is hidden knowledge that you need, but you don't get the knowledge until you commit, until you pay up, basically. That's not what Christianity is like. We tell you everything. We've got nothing to hide. There's nothing to There's no deception. And this is why it's important to tell the truth when we're telling the gospel. But Paul is not coming with a hidden agenda. He's not coming out of guile. He doesn't have to trick people into following Jesus. There's no... There's no uh, there's no special sales technique. To, there's no manipulation. It's all godly character. Now, he also says, well, let me backtrack for a moment. One of the, uh, well, Scholars debate on 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 on what Paul is being maybe accused of. Is, what is he defending against? Is there somebody attacking him in Thessalonica that he feels a need to defend himself and his character? And that's, by the way, what we call mirror reading a letter. Mirror reading a letter is when you just have one piece, of, the letter in front of you, and you don't know what the other people at the other end of that communication chain was saying or thinking. So you, you kind of think that somewhere in Thessalonica is a reflection of what we see in the letter. And that, by the way, is useful to do when we're reading the letters of Paul, but it can be tricky and can be misleading. Not everything, not every positive in the letters has a negative in Thessalonica. When he says love one another, it doesn't mean that they're actually not loving one another necessarily and that sort of thing. So nevertheless, is there something there? And so scholars debate whether the accusation is, you know, based in, in uh, the Jewish uh, accusations about Paul being a false prophet. Because some of the language that Paul uses to defend himself comes out of Jeremiah, uh, where, uh, where uh, people, where Jeremiah is critiquing false prophets. And so maybe Paul's saying, no, I'm not like that. A false prophet, Jeremiah says, uh, in a number of places, is one who promises peace where there is no peace. 
the false prophets in Jeremiah's day, centuries before Christ, were telling everybody, it's all right, you're good, you're good, you're no worries. When the enemy's virtually at the gates and Jerusalem is about to be overrun. And they kept saying, it's okay. And false prophets don't stop to listen to the Lord. False prophets just want to have a positive reception and fame among their people they're prophesying to. They want to get money out of it. And so is Paul defending against being the accusations of being a false prophet? Quite possibly. Uh, but Paul says, verse 4, I'm pleasing God, not people. I'm pleasing God not people. On the contrary, says, just as we've been attested by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not pleasing men, but pleasing God who tests our hearts. Wow. Just think about verse 4 for a minute. God tests our hearts. He checks our motives. <laughs> Outreach, mission, Christian effort of any kind that aims simply to please people and not to please God well, guess what? Damage, well, damage people and displease God. <laughs> Outreach that aims to please people and is not aimed at pleasing God will damage people and displease God. We should be asking whenever we're doing our outreach, will not, will this make the people happy, but will this please God? Apply this to strategy, to tactics, and especially according to this verse, to language. We speak. Pleasing God, he says, verse 4. The gospel is a precious trust given to us to pass on to others. We must not mess with it for the sake of better PR. You know, uh, language is an interesting thing. How many times have I heard people say that the gospel is about accepting Jesus? Just accept Jesus and you'll have... Whatever, love, joy, peace, you'll have all these things. Is it biblical to accept Jesus? Is that a language from the Bible? Actually, yes. John 1, 12, to all who received him, that is to receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave power to become the children of God. So it is biblical, but that's about the only place it says it. <laughs> all right. Because the gospel is as much about God accepting us even more than it is about us accepting him. Right? Uh, you know, sometimes we go to Revelation chapter 3. You know, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Will you let him in? It's true, but it's true. He wants to have fellowship with us. But guess what? Being converted is not about giving us giving permission to God, but about us surrendering to God. He's in charge and we're not. And so, again, just think about the language that we use. Don't ever dumb down the gospel for the sake of pleasing people. Amen? Because God is backing up his gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit, and that was what will convert people. That's what will work. So, we're on this... Uh, we're in this section here on character, on not having the wrong motives. 
and verse 5 and 6 talk about another issue of, of motive, a track record of integrity. Paul says, if you look at verse, uh, let's say, 3 and 4, it's about the claims that Paul makes about himself and his team. We didn't come, that's from Paul's own testimony. We didn't come with flattery, we weren't deceiving you, and so on. But if you look at verses 5 and 6, it's about what the Thessalonians could verify themselves. It's about their, about their own memory. We never came with words of flattery, he says, as you know, is that you know again, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Notice, by the way, in verse, in verse 5, that there's two witnesses brought in to, to the truthfulness of Paul's statements. The first one is the Thessalonians. We weren't flattering you. You know that. How do you know that? Because you were there, right? But what about if Paul was really coming with, where he had an inner greed covered up by external goodness? What about that? That's something the Thessalonians couldn't testify to, but Paul says, God's my witness on that one. And he better be right in saying that, because when you bring God as witness on something, uh, you better be telling the truth. And so... That's the witness. And he said, nor were we seeking glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. You know, maybe Paul's being, uh, being uh, accused, not perhaps of being a false prophet in the Jewish, or in, in the mode of Old Testament false prophets, but maybe he's being accused of being uh, a kind of traveling sophist. If I can explain, there's a cultural feature here, First century Mediterranean world, Eastern Mediterranean, one of the, one of the things that was very popular was to have traveling speakers, people who were rhetoricians, who could wow the crowd with, with, uh, their words of wisdom and by giving a speech about history, philosophy, you know, when you didn't have the television to put on, what kind of entertainment do you, did you, did you use? And so, uh, what, oh, you didn't have an internet to browse? What, what are they going to do, right? And so one of the things that they loved was someone who's, who's a powerful speaker and can, uh, you know, the TED talks of their day, right? And so someone is, and these people were famous. They had statues put up to them. They had medals in, in the, in the, uh, in the athletic games alongside the athletics, you'd also get wreaths and crowns and things uh, for the best play and the best songwriting and uh, the best public speaking. And so the sophists were kind of philosophically trained and they'd rock into town and uh, they were famous for being able to persuade you about anything no matter what they believed. They could take any kind of position and tell you and persuade you. But the sophists, what they really wanted was money. And so they'd come into town and they would advertise, um, uh, I'm, you know, uh, and they'd rent a hall and they would advertise and people would come to listen and see how good they are. They would take uh, subjects at 10 minutes notice and speak on it for an hour, this kind of thing. And, uh, and people would see, and if they're any good, people would come back and pay next time. Uh, to hear them, and, and they would, perhaps would ask that person to be the tutor for, of, uh, for the rich kids in town. The families would say, yeah, you need to be my, our tutor for our kids, and so they'd get money that way. And so the sophists were, would have to come in and flatter their audience. This is the greatest town I've ever been in. 
yeah, these you guys, and that's what they would do. You'd read their speeches. They come in, and the first thing they do is tell people how wonderful they are. That's the character of the sophists in ancient Greece and and, and uh, ancient, you know, and Achaia. That's what they were doing. And Paul is really perhaps defending, saying, "We're not like that. We didn't come to flattering you. We weren't out for money, right?" Uh, we weren't seeking glory. By the way, one of the things I quite like about this church, and I know you're kind of in between pastors and things, but one of the things I like about it is it's a little bit hard for visitors to tell who's in charge. Uh, and I think that's not a bad thing. Uh, you know, uh, there was a, one of the favorite churches I ever ministered in was a church in the west, southwest of England in, in the county of Devon. And the pastor, or the, the main leader of this church was a, a former missionary who'd come back and he started this church and a wonderful church and full of young people getting saved and reaching the lost and going into missions, wonderful church. But if you went to a, a meeting there uh, and, uh, and I preached there, it was, I was saying, who's in charge here? <laughs> you know, where's the pastor? Yeah, and because what I was expecting is the head guy to make his presence felt. And uh, so everybody gives everybody a moment of security. They know who's in charge uh, and everything. But the leader there was not looking for glory. He's quite happy to put other people forward. No, you preach this week. You do this this week. You do that. He's getting other people to do the ministry, just like it says in Ephesians 4. That's what these gifts are for, to, to equip others for the work of service. And so... Paul saying, we weren't coming seeking glory. You know, they, they were apostles. They came with heavyweight credentials. <laughs> they could have insisted on their own importance that they be honored and glorified. This, after all, first century Mediterranean world is an honor and shame culture. Unlike, say, you know, some people think American culture is materialist, right? He who dies with the most toys wins. Uh, in, in first century world, he who dies with the most honor wins. And so that's what you're trying to accumulate uh, in the credentials race. How much honor and glory and, 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 and fame can you accumulate? I'm not sure we're so different. And so they, uh, but Paul and, and Silas and Timothy as apostles could have come through insisting on their own importance, their own honor. But they didn't. There's no inscriptions to Paul that have been found in the, you know, in the first century world. They weren't putting up altars to him or anything like that as they were to others. But he's pointing, they're pointing not to themselves, but to Jesus and to the gospel. This is not having the wrong motives, not seeking honor, not seeking approval, not seeking money, just character, confidence, character, and the third thing then, and the last thing, commitment. What makes your mission, your outreach worthwhile? Commitment. And this, this, this passage, verses 7 to 12, you could call it the mothering and fathering of Christian leadership. The mothering and fathering of Christian leadership and outreach. And we'll read verses 7 and 8 again. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In the same way, having a fond affection for you, we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves 
because you had become very dear to us. They were gentle like a nursing mother. Now, you know, lots of mothers here, and, and uh, but we've just returned a week, just over a week ago from visiting our some of our family on the East Coast and uh, where we met our, our baby granddaughter for the first time. And our daughter-in-law there, you know, she's like so many other mothers when that she's just a three-week-old baby. And when she, that baby has a need, it's just a wonderful picture of gentleness, of care, of absolute focus, and of quiet as she focuses down on that baby and that baby's needs. And uh, that's what Paul's talking about, like a nursing mother. How does this gentleness fit with divinely given boldness as Paul and, the, and his team come through? Well, that's an interesting thought, but I think it's a wonderful bringing together. Be bold and gentle. Be bold and gentle. And verse 8 then goes beyond that. It talks about a self-giving love alongside the message of the gospel. Right? We were sharing with you, pleased to do it, not only the gospel, but our own selves. Right? The gospel alone saves, but the gospel is not alone because it comes with the power of the Spirit we saw in chapter 1. And now in chapter 2, the gospel comes with the love of the messengers that bring it. There's nothing impersonal in Christian leadership, ministry, mission, and outreach, right? It's all very personal. This time, it's personal. It's not just information we're imparting, no matter how crucial that information is, and then see you later. It involves, Christian ministry involves costly, personal, sacrificial commitment to people. It's friendship, not just leadership. You know, I met this pastor once who had, uh, in Australia, and he had, uh, he had gone to uh, a Bible college, and he had been told in his denomination, don't let your people know your first name. Don't let your people know your first name. It was, it was that wanting to establish a proper distinction between clergy and laity, between you know, between the leaders and the led and uh, between the ordained and the non-ordained and all of that. And I think that's all bogus. And he was, and he was saying this to me, having discovered that that didn't work <laughs> and having to change strategy. But when you come with the gospel, it's not sufficient to come with information. You're coming to give not only the words, but yourself. It's a personal costly sacrificial commitment to real people verse 9 is also rather parental right it's like it's the hard working of parents for their children because it says this is Paul not wanting to put a financial burden on the church he's working with you remember brothers our labor and toil working night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you we proclaim to you the gospel of God now, work and labor are key issues in this book, and we mentioned that last week. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about the work of faith and the labor of love. Guess what? Work and labor come from faith and love. Another way to think of this is that Paul's work 
supporting himself while he's missionizing in Thessalonica was an act of love. He's by, by not burdening them. He could have expected hospitality from them. He decided not to ask for it. He decided to work for his living. And he had to, in order to do that, he had to work night and day, which is a long time. Uh, and, and, but interestingly, by the way, it says, while we're working night and day, we proclaim the gospel to you. It turns out that that work not only supported him and did not then bring a burden of hospitality upon the poverty-stricken Thessalonians, but it also turns out that that work was the arena for Paul's evangelism. It's while he's working in his tent-making job, business, that he is evangelizing Thessalonica, his customers, his clients, his, you know, his uh, suppliers, his fellow uh, market uh, people, and so on. Work was the environment for Paul's proclamation of the gospel. (laughs) And working to support yourself, listen, and your family is an act of love because it means you're not a burden on someone else. If you don't support yourself, guess what? Someone will have to, whether it's the government or, in fact, all of us through our taxes or whether it's your family or your friends, someone will support you. You're not going to starve to death on the streets of this city, but... If you don't work, then someone will support you. Now, obviously, not everybody can. Some people are physically incapable for whatever reason, too young, too old, uh, too infirm. There's all sorts of reasons why some people can't do that. And there there are seasons also why people need to be supported. But nevertheless, this is a powerful thing. It's a powerful witness to the church. And then finally, verses 10 to 12, he turns from... You know, so verses, uh, uh, the, pre- the first part of this passage was on mothering, right? The care, the personal commitment. We've got the parenting of financial responsibility. And then verses 10 to 12 is about a father's righteous commitment to training. A father's righteous commitment to training. You will witness in God also how holy and righteous and, bl- by the way, there's those two witnesses again, right? Them and God. You, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. And by the way, First Thessalonians, being the, probably the earliest Christian document written that we have, uses the word believers for Christians. But, and, and guess what? Uh, before Paul and, and before the early church, people didn't use the word believers uh, for a religious adherent. Nowadays, everybody's a believer, Muslim believer, Hindu believer, you know, Buddhist believer, that's what we use. But that language comes from the early church. And this is probably the first evidence we have of it. And why would he call them believers instead of lovers or something? It's interesting. It's because faith was so much at, as, at the heart of who they were, it's, it, of their self-understanding. Now, moving right along. Verse 11 and 12. You know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory we are righteous like a good father is what he's saying what did that mean well we exhorted you that was righteous to do that it was absolutely the right thing to exhort you to train you to encourage you charge you walk worthily of god just like a father does with his children listen that's righteous and that's blameless so, 
if we can just recount those three things again. What makes outreach, mission, ministry, Christian activity, what makes it worthwhile? What means it is not in vain? Number one, confidence, boldness in God to proclaim the gospel when so much and so many tell us to shut up. Confidence. Number two, character, integrity, no wrong motives, not using others to build our own kingdom, no deceit, no flattery, no glory seeking, pleasing God, not people. And number three, commitment, costly personal commitment to the people God sends us to alongside the proclamation of the gospel. If you live these things out, it's worth it no matter the results. Listen, if you live these things out, it's worth it no matter what the results are. It's not in vain. But the good news, just to finish, is this. This way of mission will in fact likely lead to positive results. This way of life will lead to positive results, most likely. Look what happens in the next four verses, which I'm not going to read for the sake of time. But... It's where Paul celebrates, he says, despite the violent opposition, the Thessalonians, opposition to the gospel, Thessalonians responded to the word, to the gospel as the word of God, by, not as the word of men. They, they discovered it really was God's word, not man's word, and they believed and they endured in their faith. And that's what the next passage, verse 13 to 16, really says. You, when you receive from us the word of God, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it is really is the word of God, which is working in you who believe. And you endured sufferings just like Jesus, like, like the prophets, like us. Wow. That's what makes mission worthwhile. Confidence, boldness in God to proclaim character, integrity, no wrong motives, and commitment, costly personal commitment and love to those God puts you with alongside the proclamation of the gospel. We can pray. Our dear Lord Jesus, you proclaimed the kingdom message even though it sent you to the cross. You were pure of heart. You came to please God and not to flatter people. You made a commitment to us in costly personal terms alongside your message and your proclamation. You, the Son of God, who became one of us, died for us, died for the sins of the whole world, and rose from the dead. You are the one we serve. Lord, Lord, let us become, as Paul says to the Thessalonians there, become imitators of you. Amen.